to open this session, I have the great pleasure to um, announce uh, the keynote of Rosie Braidotti, with whom I've been working for many years now. Rosie Braidotti is a distinguished university professor and founding director of the Center for the Humanities at Utrecht University. Her many publications include uh, Patterns of Dissonance, Metamorphosis, Transpositions, Nomadic Subjects, Nomadic Theory, The Post-Human, and many, many more. Together we edited uh, two books, This Delusion Century, on art, activism, and life, and, uh, as Lucas already mentioned, uh, Philosophy After Nature. Her lecture is called The Necropolitics and Ways of Dying. Good morning, not that I can see you, but uh, lovely. Um, Lucas, thank you so much, first of all, for inviting me, and secondly, congratulations on this forever expanding festival, taking over the world, not just the city of Amsterdam. Phenomenal. And Rick, great to be teaming up again, uh, doing what we do best, speak truth to power and have a great time doing it. Now, 10, 11 in the morning is far too early to really delve into the metaphysics of death. Um, so I'll try to uh, keep it lighthearted and show you the joyful side of this conversation. Also, <clears throat> being a baby boomer from uh, the Gutenberg galaxy, I wouldn't dream of coming to a festival like this with any images because they would look pathetic. So we can um, do this, we can even do a, a simply kind of zen screen and then you can project your own stuff uh, in an imaginary manner far more effective than anything I uh, would do. After all, words are sonic acts and, uh, and you're much more um, apt at this than I am. So let's get rid of a couple of things and then plunge into the question of the necropolitical. The idea that death is unthinkable, or even the unthinkable, is foundational in Christian Western thought, and completely uh, false, of course, completely wrong. And, uh, unthinkable because it's unimaginable somehow for the Western subject to think of a world without me. It's really a case of me, me, myself, I, and me tooism. And the unthinkability um, of, of death, um, as much as its inevitability, has occupied critical theory certainly since um, the First World War in the interbellum, but of course um, massively uh, after the Second World War when the becoming corpse um, entered a little bit um, uh, our daily life. As a baby boomer, I remember the very first photos of genocides, of masses of dead bodies, which was um, after the Second World War as a result of Shoha and the deportation and the killing of our Jewish and other uh, unwanted population. I remember the shock of heaps of corpses. Now project that over the last 50 years and the ubiquity of the corpse as an element in our daily life, in the news, but also in popular culture. Um, uh, I think the forensic turn in popular entertainment has made the corpse a daily existence. Uh, thrillers and television series and basically just think of the bridge and Nordic noir. Um, uh, so how can something be simultaneous Simultaneously unthinkable and ubiquitous. And I think that's the thing about death and the necropolitical that becomes the focus of philosophical work after the Second World War. And my teachers, the much lamented and very often dismissed unfairly French philosophers, take it very, very seriously, rethinking life and death after the Holocaust, after the moral decline of. Um, 
Europe after decolonization and the acknowledgement of colonialism and imperialism. It's called biopower or biopolitical if you're looking at the great social movements of the 1970s, feminism, anti-racism, anti-nuclear, decolonization movements, and then of course the philosophical repercussion of it, post-structuralism, Michel Foucault and his death of man. If I have time, I'll get to that part of the paper. Um, it's called biopower. It's about power over life, but obviously if you're talking about power over life, as Foucault famously put it, you're not only talking about who is allowed to live on, who is being taken care of by the, by the benevolent, surveillance-driven governmentality of advanced democracies. You're also talking about who is let to die, to sink in the Mediterranean, to rot in the invisibility of a social diaspora and social liminality. Thanatopolitics. Foucault calls it, is the necropolitical as the inevitable size, uh, other side of biopower and biopolitics. If you're looking at the scholarly production, there's been a lot more work on bios and bio than on thanatos. <laughs> and uh, I think it's interesting that we have focused for 20, 30 years on the biopolitical management of this and of that, in spite of the fact that epidemics and the persistence of the becoming corpse are part of our daily existence. This situation changes with the discussion on climate change and the Anthropocene. I would argue that with the Anthropocene and climate change, the necropolitical comes center stage and all of a sudden, everybody is on to death and destruction. And learning to die in the Anthropocene, as Cranton puts it, seems to be a central leitmotif. And if we agree with this short introduction, I now want to go on and demolish this case and say that the Anthropocene has really um, sinned uh, too much on the side of a very apocalyptic vision of what is happening, and it is contributing to a general loss of creative energy and affirmative force that I would like to try to re-inject, not only in the critical theory community, but in our citizenry as, as a whole. We seem to be exhausted, <laughs> exhausted with everything, <laughs> uh, with democracy, with radicalism, with anarchism, with, with media, with high culture, with low culture, with leadership, with lack of leadership, the fatigue. Um, and I think the element of fatigue and exhaustion needs to be brought much more to the center. What is wrong with us that we are so tired, um, uh, that we cannot imagine sustainable uh, future? Uh, the difference between being tired and exhaustion has been elucidated by that genius that is Deleuze when he says you are tired of something. You can be tired of life, tired of London, tired of whatever. Tiredness requires an object, it's transitive, but exhaustion is intransitive. You're exhausted by nothing and by everything. And my quarrel with anthropogenic um, discourses, the genre of the Anthropocene, is that they have increased that sense of impossibility and impotence um, and has generated a kind of a paralyzing um, influence and a peculiar jouissance in the spectacle of our own destruction and demise. And who that us is, who the subject of this particular spectacle is, will be also part of my quarrel. So let's demolish the Anthropocene, shall we, so that we can all get on. Um, in the Oxbridge tradition, I am a subject of the Australian education system, which is um, Britain uh, in the colonies. It was allowed to drink after 11, so we're almost there. <laughs> uh, half an hour, and then it's the, it's, the, it's the professor's first glass of bubbles. You can see Australia and its drinking habits here. 
Anthropocene, not a concept, um, has not been accepted by anybody in the scientific community, um, has no real, uh, even the, ge the geological society sort of discussed it and it was abandoned. But more importantly, it's one of those um, concepts, notions, ideas that has entered what I call, with my friend Sarah Nato and Achille Membe, epistemic accelerationism. It has gone into a spin. Let me give you an example. It started as Anthropocene, it became an anthropomeme almost immediately. We now have Xutolocene, Donna Haraway, if you can pronounce it, Capitalocene, Anthropocene, Anthropoobscene, <laughs> Plasticcene, Plantation Scene, and my favorite, Misanthropocene. <laughs> And the list is open. I'm collecting these, so if you found find some, um, uh, please send them. So there is a, a discussion here that I can't go into it, not before the first glass of GNT, on what exactly is the political economy of this accelerationism. And that's what I do in my next book. Please buy it. It's great. Coming out in May. <laughs> called Posthuman Knowledge. There is a whole discussion on the speeds with which concepts enter a spinning machine and lose all solidity, robustness, or any type of critical pull. This is um, the, the, ter the, the territorializing speed of cognitive capitalism, a system that feeds on uh, producing knowledge, information, and absolutely destroying it as it goes. Uh, the part of the spinning and the loss of energy of the concept is that we actually do not quite know what we are talking about. And if you take each one of these possible definitions, say the capitalocene or the plantation scene, you would get a substantially different cartography of what exactly are the issues at stake. So what I would like to do is to accept this multiplication of possible meanings and say there is not one Anthropocene that would be um, a crisis that happens within the parameters of hegemonic whiteness, Eurocentric, urban dwelling, liberal middle classes that do their recycling and are turning to veganism. <clears throat> There's not only that. There are multiple points of views here, multiple points of um, entry into the discussion. Um, so the Anthropocene should not be allowed to reflect the anxiety of dominant cultures, ethnic groups, classes, genders, or sexes. I don't want it to be just yet another white man lament. And I think the idea that there are multiple perspectives on the issue of climate change, of extinction, of survival, seems so obvious, doesn't it? But it is still something that is very, very marginal in the discussion about climate change. And I think what is fantastic about Sonic X, with the presence of the work of Povinelli and other artists here, that you're going to get the point of views of the people who are the real engineers of survival, um, uh, decolonial indigenous populations that survived colonizations and the devastation of their natural and cultural resources, and that are watching this crisis of the white um, uh, majority all of a sudden discovers its own vulnerability with a certain amount of skepticism, shall we say. You want to talk about survival? Talk to the Australian Aborigines. Let's have this conversation. And I think that another book that I've just put out is called Posthuman Ecologies, co-edited with Simon Bignall, my uh, fellow uh, warrior in, in Australia, and it does talk, talk about the interface between indigeneity, decolonization, and the question of the Anthropocene climate change. So let's multiply the points of entry. This is not relativism, it's multiple perspective. Perspectivism, which in feminism we pioneered uh, under, as if you know my work is my leitmotif, 
under the methodology of the politics of location. Speak from somewhere specific and ground your statement in a location, which is, of course, to do with ethnicity. It is to do with, um, with race, with age, with multiple parameters, um, which are not the mantra of political correctness. Get off the Steve Bannon bullshit. These are sociological parameters by which we ground a humanity that is differential, common, and accountable in the multiple perspectives that it embodies. Differential, multiple, accountable, grounded. And I think there is a multiplicity of possible Anthropocenes, but we need to decolonize and desexualize or demasculinize the discussion from the start. If the Anthropocene is to become another universal, highly romantic lament of white urban masculinity complaining about his vulnerability, I'm out of there. <laughs> uh, taking a nice long walk. So with that polemic gone, and I think I can imagine discussions and provocations coming up, let's build then the alternative case. And the alternative case is already implicit in what I said so far. The human is not a neutral term. The human and humanity are anything but neutral, let alone universal, which sometimes is used interchangeably. I think from the 18th century on, since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was postulated by, the, by roughly the French and American revolutions, uh, people who, who did not qualify as human raised the question, say, fantastic, we have a de Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I happen to be a woman, says Olympe de Gouges. Do I qualify? Does the human cover for me? And Olympe de Gouges writes an alternative, the Universal Declaration of Women's Rights, 1792. Can you tell me what happens to Olympe de Gouges? Does anybody know? How does she end? Oh, the guillotine, of course. Thank you, brothers, immediately. <laughs> On the spot, 1792, done. Um, this was, it's universal, but hey, there's human and human. Um, Toussaint Louverture, the revolution in Haiti, 1792-3, black, wants to liberate the slaves, does liberate the slaves from the French colony and declare the first open uh, post-slavery society um, on the principles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. What happens to Toussaint Louverture? The French Imperial Army goes in and squashes the whole thing. Haiti never got its act together since. Universal, human, not neutral, loaded with power differential. They're in fact terms that almost police the access to what counts as humanity. Counting as human is an incredible entitlement. Not everybody does. Or we do so differentially, in materially embedded and embodied perspective. We are not human to the same degree, not in the same way, and a lot of us humans are far more mortal than others. The degree to which you access full humanity gives you different degrees of mortality, or what uh, is used as the general uh, the genre de lament, vulnerability, a term which I have banned from my um, uh, terminology. Different degrees of mortality, different degrees of having access to humanity. Project this issue to the discussion today about people that we call refugees. 
sub-people. Paul Geroy would say infra-humans. Um, uh, do they count? Um, are they human? Do we extend any of the rights and entitlement of humanity to so them? Think what Hannah Arendt would say about these stateless people and how do they do not achieve the category of humanity. So Anthropocene, climate change and humanity, I resist the broad generalizing sweep, the fake universality of that statement. I want to embody and embed it and account for the differences. For some human, the tsunami of extinction has been a daily reality, and the Anthropocene is just a pathetic replay of what they know all too well. I want to give you some example of the white lament, because the literature of anxiety connected to the Anthropocene is two-thirds of what is being published. It's a full-time industry with the Hollywood uh, catastrophe and apocalyptic movies pumping this up. Um, and the Hollywood movies are all the same, from Mad Max to the second Blade Runner, white man, gun, dog, pickup truck. <laughs> looking for the girl and usually getting it. Ooh, new, totally new, extraordinary, revolutionary um, uh, stuff. You can, the, the, the plot is like exactly as it was in 1943. Literature of anxiety, enormous. Um, Naomi Klein, it changes everything, true, but um, uh, Habermas, uh, future of human nature. Uh, Fukuyama, of all people, calling for some regulation after he called for deregulating everything. He wants to regulate this, the whole biogenetic thing for fear of machines taking over humanity. Look at the cover of Fukuyama's book, Our Posthuman Future. White babies, I swear to God. A cover full of white babies. Not a single one of them has a shade. Sloterdijk wants to re-regulate the human park. Pope Francis, extraordinary creature, uh, joined the debate uh, with his own brand of Catholic apocalyptic thinking, uh, calling on, of course, natural law, but very concerned about the effect of capitalism on the environment. Give it to the guy. He's, I don't know how he's still not been assassinated. But, um, uh, and when he held his own seminar on uh, climate change at Castel Gandolfo, he invited his own keynote speaker. The cardinals invited the usuals, and he invited Naomi Klein. I uh, would like to have seen that one. It would have been something else. Um, apocalyptic monotheism, it is known as, and it puts the churches at the moment at the forefront of the discussion on how to stop capitalism from destroying more of the planet. So this is like the serious, moral, very Christian um, literature of anxiety. It gets worse um, if you go to the left and right of the populist literature spectrum. Um, on the left, we have Badiou declaring his political impotence. Um, we have Latour running out of steam. Um, and, and saying the critique is running out of steam. Now, I don't remember Latour ever have a, uh, any relationship to critical thinking, so I don't understand what exactly uh, is the steam that he's running out of. He never had it to begin with, but okay. Zizek, supporter of Trump, because of course Trump is far less dangerous than those wishy-washy liberals represented by the much despised Hillary Clinton. Gendered liberalism is the enemy for left-wing populists. I'd rather have uh, Putin, of course, the leader of them all, but Trump, phenomenal champion. This is the left. Imagine, this is the left. Let's go to the right. Michel Welbeck, submission 
France being overrun by them Muslim. Ayan Hirsi Ali, submission. Them Muslim being completely cruel to the women and the, and the gays. Um, Eric Zeman, French suicide. Thiel Sarrazin, Germany abolishes itself. Alan Finkelkraut, the unhappy identity. Jordan Peterson, the sky is falling. Mark Lilla, liberals are guilty of everything. Lament, 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 recriminations, um, attacking each other, barking against um, uh, the, the, the walls, really, um, uh, because something in the center doesn't hold anymore. I think if you look at the size of this literature, do a rosy thing, draw a line under it, and take the Spinozist affirmative route and say, enough already. Can't get a life, as we say in Melbourne. Um, and I think Getting a life means looking at the crisis of men, the crisis of the human, in dramatically different ways, in more lucid, grounded ways, and with less arrogance and a little more awareness of the partiality of the crisis that we are, this, uh, that we are lamenting and complaining about. And in my work, this becomes the question, who is the we that is complaining that we are on the edge of extinction. Who is speaking? Who is the subject of this utterance? And I think around the question of the we, then I would spin a very different discourse. Let's reconnect the we to the multiple perspectives of the Anthropocene that I started up with. We can be quite a large community if we agree to differ and to ground our statements, if we don't generalize um, uh, what is happening to us. I would then ground the we in politics of location and grounded in a different understanding of time and timing. And one of the great things about this festival is that because there is so much music and finishing with the big opera on Sunday, music allows you to hear time. And I think the question of time is absolutely essential. If we are in a, in a discourse of self-lamenting extinction, the end of time seems to be like this edge of the cliff and that we will fall over and then drop into the void. So we need to look very carefully at a different um, type of temporality. Multiple temporality and multiple time continuums. Um, and again, I get this from my philosophical teachers plus my own work with alternative um, non-Western uh, philosophies uh, and also my own work on feminism and how very different women's time is um, uh, in, in terms of both reproductive cycles and um, social cycles of labor. That's a tricky one, so I leave it for now. But multiple temporalities. What Deleuze teaches us that to talk about now, to talk about the present, does not mean that the present is flattened on a single moment that could die in front of our eyes and, and disappear. The present is both the record of what we are ceasing to be and the seeds of what we're in the process of becoming, both the no longer and the not yet. This time continuum that Deleuze does with Bergson, but you can do it with Whitehead, you can do it with many other processed philosophies. The time continuous allows you to multiply, of course, the temporal scale. If, if, if the present is both the record of what we're ceasing to be 
end the seeds of what we're in the process of becoming, both actual and virtual, if we wish, when there is no real reason to despair here, there is a lot of work to be done. Let me give you an example. The almost emblematic figure of this is Michel Foucault's image of the face of men being drawn on the side, on the beach, on the seashore, and the waves of history, the waves of time, come and erase the faces. 1966, Les Moines Les Chaux, out in 1970 in English, uh, with the title The Order of Things, and Foucault's thesis is, man is dead. Humanism is over, 66. Uh, European hegemony is over. We need to think again what kind of humans we're in the process of becoming. The, the death of man is the opening of multiple possibilities that call upon serious engagement on our part. Um, uh, thinking of the present as virtual future, what we are in the process of becoming, is a praxis. It's hard work. There's not time here to indulge in apocalyptic laments or to luxuriate in the spectacle of our own demise. Roll up your sleeves and let's work on alternative. Um, what we need to do, the daily gestures of transformation of the ways in which we live, which is the reason why the planet is in the conditions that it is. There is here a Spinoza's philosophical ontology. You can do it with Whited, with Wittgenstein, with many other philosophers, i.e. not a Hegelian dialectical ontology. It is not about opposing the present. It's not about opposing capitalism, or you can oppose capitalism, I sure do, but it is a meaningless statement given that capitalism is us. Do you really want to oppose capitalism? Chuck out all the gadgets that you have in your pocket, on your lap, and in your bag, and do it now. Because Google and Apple and all of those are oligarchic monopolies that pay no tax, exploit your data, and are laughing all the way to the bank. You want to oppose capitalism, change the way you live. And that's precisely Deleuze's argument. Because we are part of the problem. We, the agents of this collective statement that we need to change to save ourselves, the planets, for intergenerational uh, solidarity for, for transnational environmental justice, we need to change those gestures of daily transformation are the most humble and the most difficult. And my quarrel with my political family, the left, is that they still prefer the flights into Marxist, Leninist rejections of capitalism, which is, as Badiou lucidly puts it, a recipe for impotence and for doing absolutely nothing. Let's activate the missing people of a we, the human that are in this posthuman convergence, as I call it, the convergence of the fourth industrial revolution and the sixth extinction. Let's deal with this convergence by bringing in the critical tools of posthumanism as well as the critical tools of post-anthropocentrism. We have those, those tools, we just need to activate them activate them in an affirmative ethical mode to create alternatives. Transformation begins in the here and the now. And the question is not extinctions per se. The question is what we are capable of becoming in this particular convergence with the particular fractures, challenges, with the pain and the exhilaration of living through a massive mutation. Let's do it. Thank you. <laughs>